Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. We normally bring you three stories, but this week on Indie Matters, we're bringing you just two because our first story has a lot of elements and wonderful interviews. Reporter Janelle Calderon spoke with three community leaders in Las Vegas about black history in the region and why a new park is so special to many people in the historic West Side. After that, I sit down with gaming reporter Howard Stutz to talk about the Super Bowl, or more specifically, sports betting and how it's changed. Now more than 30 states have legalized sports betting, so how has a gambling dynamic shifted in Nevada? The new historic West Side Legacy Park opened in December. It features art and photographs from major events, a trail, and creates a community space while sharing the stories of several prominent black leaders from the Las Vegas Valley and elsewhere in the state. Reporter Janelle Calderon has more. When it comes to Nevada history, the experiences and contributions of the state's African-American residents haven't always been highlighted. Housing through most of the 20th century was strictly segregated and black families in Las Vegas were confined to the west side of the railroad tracks, now known as the historic west side. As early as the 1930s, West Las Vegas was greatly populated by black pioneers who purchased land, built their own businesses and thrived. In 1955, the Moulin Rouge Hotel and Casino in West Las Vegas opened as the first integrated business of its kind in Nevada. In 1960, the hotel served as the site where Las Vegas casino owners agreed informally to integrate their establishments in what is known as the Moulin Rouge Agreement. Visitors of Legacy Park can find a large photograph of that historic meeting. I spoke with Las Vegas City Councilman Cedric Creer, who grew up in historic Westside and whose parents are featured in the park, about how the park honors that chapter of the Black community's history. Black people have been a part of this community for decades in some way, shape, or form since its founding. And we have so many pioneers that helped build this city to what it is today. And not just the Black community, building the Black community, but the city in general. You have people who are professionals. You have people who are workers that work in the casinos that helped build the casinos. Before 1960, before the Moulin Rouge Agreement was signed, Black people could not go in the casinos, but they could work in the casinos. So all of your guest room attendants and not all of them, but your guest room attendants, your bellmen, cooks in the back, waiters were, were, were black and they worked, but they couldn't participate and go to restaurants and eat. They couldn't go stay in the hotel, but they could work there. So black history is Las Vegas history, but it's a huge component of it. Many people don't really recognize it. So it's great that we do take them to recognize the contributions of those who um, have done so much for our community. Creer and former Clark County Commissioner Lawrence Weekly collaborated with the county and city of Las Vegas to plan and build a park. Weekly took the inspiration from a memorial park at his alma mater, Grambling State University in Louisiana, and pitched the concept to Creer. Creer said it took two years and more than $3.2 million in financing, from conceptualization to opening day on December 4th. Honoraries include former Senator Joe Neal, the first black state senator, Charles West, the first black doctor in Nevada, and James McMillan, the first black dentist in the state. For Creer, the history is personal. 
His father was the second black doctor in Nevada in the 60s. When he and my mom moved out to Vegas in the mid-60s, when you went to your family practitioner, that was a doctor you went to if you were sick, if you were pregnant, if you hurt your arm, you went to go to Dr. Creer. The first black doctor in the States, it was Charles West. And Charles West heard about my father, who was the first black student admitted to University of California Irvine's medical school. My parents were originally from Houston, Texas. And he heard about him, reached out to him. Like I, I used to say, you know, it wasn't like he DM'd you or he sent you a text. Uh, you had to literally track people down and he did it. And asked my father to come out and help him with his practice when he graduated. And my father did. And he practiced medicine for over 45 years and gave out tremendous amount of free medical care to the community. You know, he did house calls. He was, he was uh, a true community doctor. In the 1960s, Black residents started moving to other parts of the Las Vegas Valley and the schools desegregated. What happened is that when the city opened up where Black people could go live in other parts of the city, I mean, naturally people gravitated to other parts. North Las Vegas, Henderson, people moved all around. And it left a void to a certain extent within the historic West Side and, and in the community. The historic West Side used to be a very burgeoning community, stores, restaurants, nightlife, hotels, casinos. And as the population dispersed, those areas, some became abandoned. I used to get my hair cut on, right on Jackson Avenue, which is right in the core of the historic West Side. It was our, Jackson Avenue was our Las Vegas Strip. It was our Times Square. And I used to get my haircut there at Dixon's Barbershop. And as people moved to other parts of the city, you know, look, there never used to be a barbershop outside of any place in the historic West Side, right? It, you, like you didn't go to Henderson to get a haircut. Now you can go anywhere around the city and there are barbers who can cut your hair or, or women who can do your hair. And so that changed a lot. And when you come back into the community, many people just would come back on Sundays to go to church. The churches still stayed here, even though there are, it's funny, I think about it, I mean, there are churches all around the city. I couldn't imagine growing up that there was a church, and I'll say all churches are open to anybody, but the historically black churches were all in the historic west side. I never knew of a church any other place. Creer said it's important that the younger generations know their roots and that without the context of history, you won't know how to address the future. It's important to know where you've come from because then you can know where you're going. And we have to recognize our, our, our leaders that paved the way. I mean, so many people sacrifice in so many different ways. Right. And if you look at James McMillan, Charles Keller, James Guy, if you look at people who were first in their fields, it's hard to be the first, right? There's a lot of responsibility that goes on to being the first. And they shouldered that and they weathered through the storm. And I know that they had had to sacrifice so much in many different ways. And so when you have an opportunity to recognize that, where our kids can come out and schools can come out. Me and Francis, I'm meeting a school named after Charles West, who's the first black doctor in the state. Charles West Elementary, I'm meeting the school over it. They're, they're taking a field trip to the historic West Side Legacy Park. And they asked me to come out and, and meet with them and, and speak to the kids. That's what it's about. And so those names aren't just names. They're people that 
allowed us to do what we do by their sacrifices. And it's important to understand that. Also spoke with North Las Vegas Councilwoman Pamela Goins Brown, whose parents were honored as well. Her family moved to Las Vegas in 1964. Well, there's a lot, a lot of history here from I call them trailblazers that came to Las Vegas back in the 60s and even before the 60s. And so to highlight those people in this park is just amazing because like my children are 26 and 31, and just so that they know the history of where they were born because a lot of them don't know that and, and they don't study that. So it's just a way to keep it alive and to teach those that are coming after us. Look at the people that came to Las Vegas that put Las Vegas on the map. Pamela was smiling while we talked. She was excited about the park, the message it conveys, and the permanence of it. Her parents, now 88 and 92 years old, are excited too. It kind of melts your heart because it's like their name is going to be out there for the world to see and it's going to be out there forever. It's just not something that's going to come and go. It's just it's a living monument in them. Anytime they visit the park, they can go, God, that's me. You know, it's just, just nice to see. Were they surprised as well? They were surprised. And my dad is 92 now and my mom's 88. She's probably going to kill me for saying that. But just the look on their faces when they're just They're just reading it and like, wow, this is pretty phenomenal. And it's such an honor. They're so humble about it. It's such an honor for them. Pamela recalled the community she grew up in and the racism that she faced. We were a very tight-knit community, especially Veronica Avenue, where we grew up in, in, an, in an area called Valley View. And like the whole neighborhood knew each other. But Ingolstadt separates the upper part and the lower part of Valley View, and we were not allowed to go on the lower part with our parents knowing it. But we snuck over there a couple of, like, because there's a park down there, and we used to go down there and play. But I can't say that I recall a lot of blatant racism when I was growing up. Certainly little comments and, and things like that you hear. I just re remember someone telling me to go back to Africa one time, and I'm like, I've never been to Africa. I don't even know what, where Africa is because I was a child, but I don't recall them saying it with such hate, but maybe I didn't know what hate was back then, but just knowing that our parents always protected us and our neighbors as well. So we had a great time growing up and just hanging out with the great neighbors that we had on our block that we grew up with. And that's, that's what I remember. I asked her what Black history meant to her. To me, Black history means telling that story keeping those legacies alive, learning about my ancestors, your ancestors, and all the great things that African-Americans did way back when to bring us where we are today. Because without those stories, without those people, we wouldn't be where we are today. Former Clark County Commissioner Lawrence Weekly told me that he never doubted that there would be support for the park and he's grateful to be part of something for the community that honors so many leaders. He also shared how the idea of Legacy Park came to him during a visit to his alma mater in Louisiana. So I'm a graduate of Grambling State University in Grambling, Louisiana. And I was there as I was leaving. I, I didn't know that they had developed uh, this uh, park in the town of Grambling. Wow, this is beautiful. And saw some of the monuments and went over and 
saw some of the names and uh, people who had made such a significant difference. Um, and I said, oh, my God, this would be so amazing in historic West Las Vegas to pay tribute, you know, to the men and women who came here and had to overcome so much adversity, uh, but were able to still be relevant and significant and inspiring. And I, I went back and I went to the county and I said, um, do I have any parks funds left? And they said, yeah, actually you do. Um, and I said, I'm thinking I got a project that I have in mind and I'd love to try and make this happen. Weekly talked about the rich history of Las Vegas, a place that he said many people brush off as being cultureless. The park is one way to acknowledge and teach people about that rich history. There are so many new people that are here in Las Vegas from all over the United States. And so there is a whole lot of rich history and culture that's here. There's so many great pioneers who did some fantastic work. The record books don't show a lot of these men and women who migrated here from Louisiana, Mississippi, Arkansas, and Texas, looking for opportunities to be able to support their families. And they worked at the Nevada test site. They worked at Hoover Dam. They worked at the plant in Henderson. There were a lot of great things that were helping to create the infrastructure. Many of them helped the creation of a number of our hotels that are standing today served in, in hospitality. They call it hospitality today, but you know, back in the day, someone had to cook the food. Someone had to make up those beds. Someone had to clean those toilets and make sure that those places were up to par so that this place could continue to grow and flourish. And it was many of those men and women who names you see in that park, many of them and their family members are the ones who make that happen. Weekly said reflecting on the past made him think about what it means for the Black community moving forward. I get choked up thinking about some of these people um, who made such a significant difference and played such an integral role in so many of our lives. And I'm so honored that I could be in a position to honor them by saying thank you. The historic West Side Legacy Park is located at 1600 Mount Moriah Drive, near the intersection of Lake Mead and Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard in Las Vegas. This story was reported and produced by Janelle Calderon and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Michelle Rendells and Jackie Valley. Alrighty, and I am here with my wonderful co-host, Jacob Solis. And Jacob, before we get going on your segment where you talked to reporter Howard Stutz about sports betting in the state, you guys recorded that before the Super Bowl happened, and you and I wanted to talk a little bit about the Super Bowl and, and, and sports betting and everything else before we got into that. So I guess to start off, who were you rooting for? Well, Joey, my rooting interests are complex and varied. I'll start there. But <laughs> the short answer is the Bengals, but but it's mostly because uh, I like Joe Burrow and I have no strong feelings either way. <laughs> I was also rooting for the Bengals because I don't like L.A. because I grew up in the Bay Area. <laughs> 
Oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. But yes, right. <laughs> uh, they did win. So good for you, LA. Good congratulations. The Los Angeles Rams, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it, well, I guess we'll talk about the game for just a second. This isn't normally a sports podcast. I was complaining about it the other week when Andrew Yang and uh, reporter Riley Snyder were talking about basketball. But here I am talking about football, a sport I know almost nothing about. It was entertaining enough. I liked the halftime show a lot. You're right, Joey. The halftime show was a genuine highlight. Uh, chef's kiss among the better halftime shows of the last decade. Let's be honest. Yeah, I, I, I thought it was fantastic. I said before the halftime show started, I bet Anderson Pack's going to show up. He did. He only played the drums and I was very disappointed. <laughs> still counts, though. Still counts. That's right. So, yeah, so the game the game apparently was fine for those who like football. It was it was nothing crazy, but it was it did have some exciting moments. Apparently, the rest of the playoffs were much more exciting. And I, I did watch some of those games and they did seem very exciting. Yeah, no, this a shootout. This was not. It was more of a defensive slog, a war of a attrition and look if you're someone who says defense wins championships this was for you this was pure if you're anyone else who enjoys watching uh, something fun and lively uh, this was not that so uh, really something for everyone <laughs> well i guess we'll we'll leave our game analysis there for the sports professionals i also wanted to briefly touch on something that is a little bit political which was the the commercials uh, which can always get a little political i'm sure but it felt like it was electric cars and cryptocurrency of the, the super bowl in terms of the commercials i can't believe larry david is is out there talking about bitcoin i that's something i didn't think that he knew anything about look we all expected crypto to be in the super bowl but it is something to watch just a qr code bounce around your screen for 30 seconds Cost, that was a 14 million dollar <laughs> commercial watching that that qr code bounce around and i scanned it they got me i feel like i got punked but i did yeah scan well, it. I'll, t- I'll tell you what pro uh, cybersecurity tip do not scan random qr codes there that one's for free. All right. Well, th- thank you for that. And I guess we will we'll also talk about a little bit about sports betting, which is what the the segment that you and Howard recorded on Friday, with a Friday before the Super Bowl. So you guys were not privy to the teams that were winning. Uh, Howard is pleased, I'm sure, with his Rams winning. But it, it, it was it was a it, a big deal for sports betting. They set a, a new record: 179.8 million dollars were bet on this Super Bowl, which broke the previous record by almost 22 million dollars, which was set in 2018. Right. And certainly Howard and I are going to get into this into the interview, but there's been sort of a sea change over the last couple of years since 2018 in sports betting. And we're really seeing that come to a head this year with, like you said, these record amounts in uh, money being put down on bets. Yeah, yeah. It was $44 million more than last year, which is a lot. But Howard also mentioned that like the Super Bowl isn't the only thing sports betting uh, encompasses. It's it's one of the bigger days for sports betting in general. But now that sports betting is legal in 30 states and D.C., and there was 10 more states added in 2021. So it's it's definitely growing a lot. I mean, it's something that people aren't doing just in Las Vegas anymore, but you can do in, in most states. And something critical to mention, too, is that there is a much deeper partnership between sports betting platforms and businesses and sports leagues themselves. And 2021 marked the first year that the NFL actually allowed the advertising of sports betting platforms. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Actually, when we were talking about the commercials, I forgot to bring it up. But other than crypto and electric car commercials, which there were plenty of, there were a lot of sports betting, a lot of commercials for DraftKings and and MGM and and stuff like that. So it was interesting to kind of see that. Definitely a different tone, I would say, the advertising, which is always a huge deal uh, for, for, for the Super Bowl. And with that, I think that's a good segue into my interview with Howard. Yep, let's hear that now. So, Howard, we are now in a brave new world of sports betting in the United States. And as I understand, this is all sort of a post-2018 development. So before we get into the nitty gritty of all this, can you explain a little bit how we got here? 
Well, thanks for having me on, Jacob. I appreciate the time and doing this, doing the podcast always. 2018, it was like five-year-long court case. New Jersey was suing to allow its, its casinos to offer sports betting. In the past, there was a there was a law that was passed called PASPA, the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act. Kept sports betting only in Nevada. The big, the big, you know, like we have it here in Las Vegas, the big sports books. There were some other states had just like parlay cards or something like that, but it was like three other states. But full sports betting was only allowed in Nevada. New Jersey sued. The Supreme Court ruled, I think it was like, what, a six to three vote in favor of New Jersey. It opened the floodgates. And where we are today in four years, we have 30 states with legal sports betting, including also Washington, D.C., there are three other states about to launch sometime this year. It could be four ballot questions in California concerning legal sports betting. Florida's tried to legalize it through the Seminole Tribe. So it, it's the biggest expansion of gaming since casinos started rolling across the country back in the like late 1990s, early 2000s. So that's that's where we're at right now with, with sports betting. It is it's probably the hottest topic for the gaming industry right now looking forward. Yeah, and I guess just to clarify, in the past, the sort of expansion of gambling has been slow, right? States wouldn't all jump on it at once. This is a new phenomenon, right? What we're seeing with sports betting? Yeah, it took probably anywhere from a decade to two decades to get 30 states with casinos. And then that, and that's also in the 90s when Indian gaming was, when the tribes were given the right to add casinos. I mean, it took a while for all this to happen. We've never seen anything like this in four years. We're, you know, just we're coming up on the four-year anniversary of the PASPA decision, and we're at over half the U.S. You're available to have sports betting. The, the American Gaming Association put out a stat last week that said 45 million people were going to bet on the Super Bowl this year, which is like a ridiculous number, a huge number of people that they've never, you know, we've never seen before that have the legal access to bet on the Super Bowl this year. Okay, so we're talking about this massive expansion of sports betting. It's previously been sort of Nevada's little fiefdom. So where does Nevada fit into all this? And, and obviously the gaming giants that we know so well here. Well, as you, we all know, every time legal gaming expansion happens, it's immediately people in Nevada is like, oh my God, is the death of Las Vegas and the death of Nevada. No, obviously this that, that didn't happen with casino expansion and it hasn't happened with sports betting. 2021, that was $8.1 billion wagered on sports betting in Nevada. That was smashed all-time records for sports betting wagering. All these Nevada companies are involved in sports betting across the U.S. Now, Station Casinos is, is in Nevada. This, they don't have operations around the U.S., but it's a company like Caesars Entertainment, which has casinos in 16 states. They've launched Caesars Sportsbook at MGM. They're, they have casinos in eight states, and they're operating sports betting in states beyond those casinos on behalf of other casino operators. Boyd Gaming entered into a deal with, with FanDuel, which is the, one of the big daily fantasy operators, now big sports betting operator. They operate all of Boyd's sports betting in their regional casinos in nine states. Boyd Gaming still operates their sports betting operations here in Nevada. So it, it's been a goldmine. It's been an incredible opportunity for the casino industry moving forward as it's happened. Mm. And so when we talk about the casino industry, I'm curious to what degree is sports betting part of the portfolio? How serious of a, of a moneymaker is it for, for these casinos? Well, it's an amenity. You know, and I'll use Nevada as the example. Last year in 2021, Nevada casinos took in $13.4 billion in revenues from all their wagering. Sports betting was just 455.1 million of those of those revenues. So it's an amenity. It's a small, it's not gonna, it's not a big turner for the financial pages. But what sports betting has become is an amazing customer acquisition tool 
for the casino industry. And when I, I use that term, all the ads you're seeing right now, you know, J.B. Smoove and, and Caesars Sportsbook and the Mannings, BetMGM with Jamie Foxx and every other former athlete that's that's been retired is now an ambassador. All those ads, all the promotions that the sports betting operators are doing in states when they launch, it, you know, basically giveaways, promotions to try to get people to sign up. Huge customer acquisition tool. And what it is, you, you're getting those people eventually are going to come into your casino, are going to, yes, they're going to bet on sports, but they're also going to maybe play a slot machine or a table game or two, have dinner, go to a show. You're, you're acquiring new customers through sports betting. That's what the big thing, the big advantage is for the big companies here in Nevada that have casinos in multiple states are using sports betting to acquire these customers. I see. And so that's why we've seen this sort of, again, unprecedented push in advertising for casinos that we really haven't seen before. We've never seen anything like this before. We've seen, we saw it back, it's interesting, in 2015, there was a huge daily fantasy sports was, was big back in 2015. And, you know, DraftKings and FanDuel seemed to inundate the airwaves with all their ads, you know, for signups. And the question was, was that gambling? And that's what Nevada ruled back in 2015, that daily fantasy sports is a form of gambling. And so that's why they had, and those companies would have to be licensed to come in here and how to apply for a sports betting license. And they didn't. Now, fast forward, DraftKings and FanDuel are two of the biggest sports betting companies in the nation. They're not in Nevada yet, though DraftKings is actually building a 90,000 square foot secondary corporate office, West Coast headquarters off the 215 Beltway here in Southwestern Las Vegas. Ironically, right across the street from where Station Casinos is going to build Durango Station. So what does that what does that mean? And probably they're going to end up coming getting in here in some ways. FanDuel with through Boy Gaming, they may get in here. Nevada's benefited off of this expansion of sports betting nationwide. Obviously, the companies have it and the ancillary businesses have it as well. Okay. Well, for the listener at home, you will have already watched the Super Bowl. You will know who has won. Go Bengals, for me anyways. But I wanted to ask you, Howard, you know, when we talk about the Super Bowl as an event that drives these these wagers, I mean, how big are we talking? Well, Super Bowl, the biggest year for Super Bowl betting was in 2018, about 158 million was bet on the game here in Nevada. Now, we'll, now obviously this is, I'm recording this, we're recording this before the game, go, go Rams. The, uh, the, uh, the we there 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 many of the sportsbook operators heading into the game were looking at this could be a record year a lot of it due to in-game wagering in-play wagering where you're actually betting on events going on during the game this has been a growing activity you do it on your mobile device that's why mobile sports betting was is something like 65% of all the accounted for all the bets last year in Nevada in sports betting. But Super Bowl is clearly every year, every year the Super Bowl is here. If you're not at the game, they say to be in Las Vegas. And that's truly what it is. It's a big event over the whole weekend for the game. Casinos have parties. Years ago, they used the name Super Bowl party. It was uh, the NFL wouldn't allow it. Now it seems they're, you know, they call them the big game. Some call them the big game parties. Caesars has an agreement with the NFL as one of the operators. They probably have Super Bowl parties all over their properties. But it is. It's a huge event. It's going to be an event on steroids when the Super Bowl is here in 2024 at Allegiant Stadium. But it is a major event in Las Vegas. And I I think we'll see that the numbers will have have increased in, in betting. We'll see. That's what the prediction was going in, that one company, Play USA, which analyzes sports betting across the U.S., more than a billion dollars is going to be wagered nationwide in, in legal sports books on the Super Bowl. They said Nevada, they expect it to be $170 million on wagered on the game. We'll see if they're right. Okay, well, something to watch. 
Howard Stutz is a gaming reporter for the Nevada Independent. Howard, thanks so much. Anytime, Jacob. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Cedric Creer, Pamela Goines-Brown, Lawrence Weekly, Janelle Calderon, and Howard Stutz for being on the show this week. This show is produced and edited by Joey, with additional editing help from Michelle Rendells, Riley Snyder, and Jackie Valley. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen, and email us with questions, comments, concerns, advice on how to spot the elusive jackalope, ghost of the sands, king of the western cryptids, and cuddly friend to all those who wander the desert, or whatever else is on your mind, at joey at theenvyindy.com, or jacob at theenvyindy.com. Our theme song is from the band People With Bodies, and we have additional music from Storyblocks and original music from Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. Advice on how to... (laughs) Incredible. Excellent. Excellent stuff.